This is E Boogie, the artist formerly known as Eric. You're now listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what is up, guys? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Anushan, and with me, I got the boys. I got AC. What is good, y'all? And, you know, we got our resident 76ers fan. We got Usley in the house. Howdy how, y'all. It is our time, finally. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Usley. For today's podcast, you know... It's only right that we talk about how good the Philadelphia 76ers are, especially now that they've got, you know, Daryl Morey's boy, the beard, James Harden. And, you know, we'll also talk about another team. Maybe it's a team that you don't really like too much. You've, you've said a couple things about them in the past. We're going to talk about the Boston Celtics. But first, let's, let's go ahead and talk about your Sixers, all sweet. What have you seen? Well, aside from a roaring crowd, a jubilant team after a glorious win (laughs) aside from that i've seen you know just nothing but good things man we have a legitimate big three coming into this trade i I thought all right we'll have a big two and a couple maybe a couple role players who might stand out no we got a big three in philadelphia and you know also there is referring to the continued emergence and absolute dominance of Tyrese Maxey. But he also mentioned that crowd reaction. And also, I happened to go to the first home game that James Harden played in for the Philadelphia 76ers against my New York Knicks. And I got to say, it was one of the craziest non-playoff crowds that I've ever seen. The reaction really just throughout it was it just seemed like it was jubilation and and you know the Knicks fans traveled pretty well and there were a decent quadrant of Knicks fans there but they were just drowned out even in a game in which for most of the game the Knicks were actually doing pretty well and were in control I, I was just stunned by the crowd and the energy of the whole thing and I've been to the Sixers arena before they have great fans but I think this is the first time this city can truly say and maybe really believe at least since the early 1980s that they have a real shot at an NBA championship. Yeah, I mean, AC, you said it super well. I, I've been saying it to Osprey a lot, and, and he can tell you himself. I really think this is the Sixers' chance to, to make a lot of big noise this year. I mean, before, they've had a glaring weakness in, in Ben Simmons. They no longer had that glaring weakness. And now they have one of the most prolific scores in NBA history, honestly, in James Harden. So, I mean, Usway, the, the floor is yours. This is this is your season. I mean, my Raptors are going to make the playoffs most likely, but, you know, I'm all in on the Sixers boat right now. I know they may end up facing Usway Sixers uh, as yeah, things are going right true. now. Well, I hope in that series it doesn't come down to four bounces on a rim. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, shout out to Scotty Barnes. I think he's the man. I'm so excited for you, Anu. I think you guys got a real gem there, so... You know, shout out to Scotty Barnes and the Raptors. Go Toronto. Hell yeah. With that being said, man, oh man, these Sixers. It's just like indescribable, right? Like a couple of years ago, I was excited if Hollis Thompson would have a good game, right? 
You know, Tony oh, yeah. Roten was was the guy. Isaiah Cannon, Ish Smith, Nerlens Noel, Michael Carter Williams. I I still got that ball signed by <laughs> Michael Carter Williams, by the way. But now we're talking about James freaking Harden as not even our best player, but our number two guy. And the guy that for most of my life as a Sixers fan, because I really got into the Sixers to this extent once we started tanking, oddly enough. But for, so for most of my life as a, as a diehard, diehard Sixers fan, Joel Embiid was like kind of like a fuck up. And now <laughs> he's a guy who is the front runner for not only the MVP race, but also the scoring title. And then we have a guy like Tyrese Maxey. So with these three guys, the Sixers are averaging 132 points per game per 48 minutes. The offensive rating is 136.1. Our defensive rating is 102. And we have a net rating of 34. Only Boston has a comparable three-man lineup. And also, the craziest thing about that, they don't even have real chemistry with each other, right? Nope. I mean, these are, are not guys who are even accustomed to playing with, say, like, if you're James Harden, a big man like an Embiid or Embiid playing with a ball-dominant guy like Harden, and yet it still fits so seamlessly between the three of them. You want to know something crazy? Despite limited practice, we have two of the top 10 two-man lineups. Embiid and Harden have an offensive rating, just them, of 134.5 and a net rating of 33, which is by far the best in the NBA. And Sixers shoot 55% from the field when Embiid and Harden are on the court. Not to mention, they both average 7.5 free throws per game, which is the two highest in the last 50 years. We also have Harden and Maxi with an offensive rating of 131.8 and a net rating of 30.5. So, yeah, it's nice. What I really like about what I've seen so far with the Sixers, you know, that big day that we're talking about, even though two of the players being James Harden and Tyrese Maxey are prolific pick and roll players, more so James Harden than Maxey, but Maxey's still up there. None of these guys actually really need the ball in their hands to be effective, right? James Harden is a fantastic spot up shooter. Tyrese Maxey moves really well without the ball, you know, coming from a background where even though he played a lot as the main ball handler, he still has to adjust to all the guys around him. And, you know, early on in his career, that's what he did. So, you know, transitioning into that kind of game comes seamlessly for him. Joel Embiid is a guy who plays in that pick and roll so well, and he has two options now that he can play with. James Harden, who's a fantastic gifted passer, great at slashing to the basket. Tyrese Maxey, great pull-up shooter, right? So the options are endless for the three of these guys to cycle in and out. And that's not even considering Joel Embiid as an isolation post-up option. This is just pick and roll we're talking about. Fun fact, guys. One of the most deadly ways of using Joel Embiid is when he initiates the dribble handoff. We score on 46% of them at 45.5% field goal percentage. And the Embiid DHO works with both Harden and Maxi. Yeah, honestly, the fact that they're using dribble handoffs this creatively with a big man sort of stepping up outside and then running these you know, various delay actions and things like that shows why Doc Rivers has been named one of the 15 greatest coaches of all time, even though he has a spotty playoff record. 
the one thing about Doc Rivers is that he has great play design, right? Like if you think about back in the day when he got Ray Allen looks through these step-up screens and things like that, he can generate really nice half-court offense. It's the other parts of Doc Rivers' repertoire from, you know, lineup decisions and game management, time management, that kind of stuff that is Mm -hmm. weak. But I've been stunned by the creativity offensively that he's already shown. Like it'd be really easy to just throw the ball to a creator like James Harden and just say, hey, make stuff happen or or throw the ball to Embiid in the post. That's not at all what he's doing. And he's demanding stuff of his players and they are actually meeting those demands, which is incredible. You know, I mean, it's interesting that you say that, AC, right? Like when you have this many talented players, especially with James Harden and Embiid, it's it's ridiculous to just have them all stand in a five out and let Embiid just go go to work, right? Like let's get everyone involved because what that does, it puts pressure on a defense, right? You don't want to let the defense just relax or let someone go and freely double a Joel Embiid. I mean, you can't really even do that now considering the wealth of shooting that the Sixers have. But to me, it's like you need to utilize everyone in tandem, run motion, run something to get everyone involved. So it allows for that offensive talent to be put on full display. And I think what Doc Rivers right now is doing is is fantastic. The other thing it does, Anu, is, you know, there's this trap that basically every single super team has fallen into. And that's the your turn, my turn offense. Right? We've seen this for Miami yep. when they first came together. Uh, you know, even a little bit of Golden State, although they had such a beautiful offense that it was even mitigated a bit. But generally speaking, when there's a super team that comes together, there's a lot of feeling out. And then especially when you have ball dominant stars, they tend to like run a set for one of them, then run a set for the other of them. What Doc Rivers has done here, and it's partly because these guys have games that fit so nicely together, is they have plays that run off of each other. But even while that's happening, the other players are involved. And I think the classic example of this is when you have James Harden in a pick and roll with Embiid and Tyrese Maxey as his extremely deadly weak side player. And I know we'll talk more about Maxey in that role a little bit later, but I, I think the more you have three players working off of each other in, in a way that's mutually beneficial, the more deadly your offense can be and the higher ceiling your team can reach. The fact that they've reached that right now is, is crazy to me. And like you mentioned, right, we should definitely talk a little bit about these players individually. So, Aswi, Joel Embiid has been your superstar for, for years now. So what exactly is it about him and what you've seen that you know, has made him so prolific in an MVP season. Well, Anushan, this season, Embiid is averaging 29.7 points, 11.2 rebounds, four assists on 49 from the field, and 35 from beyond the arc. Not to mention, 82 from the line, an effective field goal percentage of 52.6, a PER of 31.5, and win shares of 9.5. So, yeah. This guy's playing amazingly. The cool thing about Joel Embiid is, yeah, he's a big man. Yeah, he's dominant, but he's not dominant in the way that a Shaq would be dominant. Like He has that in his game. But when you look at how he's shooting, where he's scoring from, it's even splits from all zones in the court, regardless of distance. To that end, he's shooting 43% with six field goals attempted per game in the mid-range alone which is comparable with LaMarcus Aldridge. But then you add the fact that he's also shooting over 70% at the rim. He also is scoring 8.6 points per game in the post at 51%. And the next closest person to do that is Nikola Jokic with 5.5 points per game 
in the post at 61%. You know, it's uh, interesting, Oswe. I mean, we can talk about Joel Embiid's overall offensive game like nonstop because the guy can do pretty much anything when it comes to offense. But, you know, there's something that I noticed now that James Harden is here. And maybe it's just him in general also wanting to do it. And it's just run the floor, right? That's something that I really haven't seen out of Joel Embiid, mainly because, you know, because he's so big and because he's so imposing, he never really had that effort in him to go and get easy baskets. But when you watch someone like James Harden and when he plays with someone like that, even Tyrese Maxey to a certain extent, you know, they want to push the ball up and Embiid's not laboring anymore. He's running, sprinting down the floor to get those easy baskets. And I think that's contributed to him potentially being the scoring champion this year, right? And he's athletic enough. It's just a matter of wanting to to run and get those easy baskets. So I'm really happy with the effort that I've seen out of Embiid, more so than, you know, just the talent that he has. No, no doubt. But it's not because of Harden, but it's made better because of Harden. Because all season long, without Ben there, Joel Embiid took it upon himself oftentimes to block a shot, get the rebound, and take it coast to coast. And that is the result of Joel Embiid, you know, ever since the birth of his son, Arthur, it's just this new Joel Embiid, one who is focused, one who is in shape, and one who is, by all accounts, in every facet of the game, a dominant big. I actually think that particular play where he grabs a rebound and pushes it full court, basically a la Charles Barkley back in the day, is one of the most difficult things to guard in the NBA right now because if you happen to have a big who has some sort of large frame that you you feel comfortable putting on Joel Embiid, there's basically zero chance that he can also run the floor with Embiid. And Embiid is just getting a lot of points, flat out beating guys down the court. And even relatively athletic bigs, like in that Knicks game that we went to us, you would do that against guys like Mitchell Robinson, you know, who's a pretty athletic guy, but then even if he's athletic enough, he can't match Embiid step for step and then also contest without getting into foul trouble. So that's putting a lot of pressure and and leading to easy offense even before they get into the incredible half-court stuff we've already talked about. You know, it's also interesting because now that he's paired with Harden, and we'll get to Harden later, but I watched a couple games now where the two of them, Embiid and Harden, would just chip away at the big men. And, And this happened in particular when we faced against your Knicks in the Garden. And basically, because Embiid and Harden are so good at drawing fouls and getting that contact, they were able to get both the starting and backup centers fouled out. And then you just have some random dude trying to guard Joel Embiid or James Harden down low. Forget it. You know, I'm not a fan of, of free throw drawing or free same, throw baiting. Same, same. But it's also a talent. We all we yeah. all understand this. There's some guys who do it and are good at it and some guys who don't. Right? Like someone like Derek Rowe, someone like Kyrie Irving, they've never been good at this. They, they tend to try to avoid contact or, or you know sort of move around the air and they don't get these calls both of these guys are two of the masters and i'll tell you something it started to remind me a little bit of an nfl team that has a great running game okay and i say this to say that those kind of teams they just kind of wear on you right like in the first quarter you're you know you're playing against them and you know maybe you stop the run for four yards or five yards but it starts taking a pounding on you and by the time you get to that fourth quarter, 
all of a sudden, one, by running the ball, you're stopping the clock. And that makes, when they're already the team that's ahead, and in this case, Sixers are often ahead, that makes it really annoying. But then people start getting tired. People start, in this case, getting into foul trouble. And now you're replacing the big guys who can prevent this kind of thing with little guys. And then it's it's like a snowball effect. And you look at both Knicks games, it's a great example. We were ahead in both games and slowly over time, as the third quarter went on and slowly into the fourth quarter, we just ran out of horses to actually compete with the size and the talent of the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah, but as you and I both know, AC, when it comes time to putting points on the board, a run game isn't the way you go. And when it comes time in the playoffs, in crunch situations, where we just need a bucket, we can't have Harden and Embiid doing the stupid shit, which it's always been my number one criticism about both of their games. Because in the playoffs, they will swallow their whistle. But you know what? You're at Joel fucking Embiid. You're the biggest guy on the court. Just try to pipe it, and 90% of the time, you will draw a foul in doing that. But if you try to do some weak shit, you're just going to make yourself look like an ass and turn over the ball. We've lost playoff series like that before. And Harden's no stranger to this either. So, yeah, the running game's good. But when you really need to get it going, you need a pass. You need to do the thing that actually gets points on the board. No, yeah, I 100% agree. And and I'm sure that once the playoffs roll around, we're going to be talking a lot about the Sixers and their playoff series. And we'll hear us, we complain a ton about that. But I also just wanted to add on to what you were saying earlier, AC, because I found it really interesting. You know, we, we've all played basketball, right? And we've all had that one guy who just likes to chuck up shots and then, you know, everyone else has to sprint back on defense, right? I can only imagine, like, that <laughs> happening multiple times over and over and over in, you know, the Sixers games. And then you have James Harden grab a rebound, push it up to Joel Embiid, who's just there to get free dunks, layups all day. I mean, it's going to be crazy, especially for the regular season. To keep seeing this happen over and over and over again. I mean, obviously, come playoffs, we won't be seeing that kind of shot selection, obviously. But I just found it really interesting. Yeah, no doubt, Anu. It's just it's a it's one of those things that you can't really game plan for. There's the speed and the talent of this team. You can talk about it in a film room, and maybe when it comes to a playoff series where they really can break down the film, they can do that. But in a regular season, you're screwed. Like you, it's like back to back, and oh wait, here comes. The seven, you know, two runs like a, a gazelle, Joel Embiid, <laughs> yeah. and here's James Harden with his whole bag of tricks. Oh, there's Maxi, and then oh wait, today Tobias Harris is hot. Like it's just, it's just too much. There's too much going on with this Philadelphia 76ers. Like I, I'm convinced that if they had a full season with this, with this particular squad, they would easily be the number one seed. Just from like everything about them, just screams like a regular season juggernaut. I don't say that pejoratively. Like I think they could also translate this to playoff basketball, but in regular season basketball. I just don't know how you deal with them. So we spoke a little bit about Embiid here. And in passing, obviously, James Harden keeps coming up because it's it's James fucking Harden, who's the second best player on a potential you know championship team here. So, I mean, us, we, we got to talk about this guy. It's the big Daryl Morey move. I mean, take it away, buddy. Well, so far, James Harden has been averaging for us 27.3 points. Nine rebounds, 59% from the field, and an astronomical amount of assists. What he brings is a slower, methodical pace. 
He's really good at mismatch hunting and just dishing the ball out. He's also really tricky. He When he does a pick and roll with Embiid, he's like a master of, of the late dumps. So like at the last second when you, when you think, oh, we can just cut you off on the baseline. Nope, let me just quickly dump it to Embiid and Embiid does his thing. In general, like their pick and roll game is, is tricky in both the short and a full roll. And he's constantly getting guys like Niang and Maxi and others open for three to the extent where James Harden is out here setting picks, guys. Like, if there's anyone who's saying that he's not about the team or anything like that, he's all about being the head honcho and all this. I mean, the man's out here setting picks. I guess that should be a given for anybody. But is James Harden known for being a pick setter in any of his two past three destinations? He's basically known for doing absolutely nothing when he doesn't have the ball. Yeah. Even when <laughs> the guy with the ball is someone as talented as, say, a Chris Paul, right? Or a Kevin Durant. He basically has done nothing before. So the fact that he's really bought into Doc Rivers' offense here and, and doing those little things is a good sign. I want to focus on some of the things you said there, though, specifically, Oswee. Yeah. I, I thought you made an interesting point about his, his mismatch hunting. James Harden has so many tricks in his bag this guy can not just get to a step back jumper like i I mean you could argue he's a guy who pioneered the step back jumper in the nba but he can get to the step back jumper with like six different combinations of moves and that's probably selling him short and one of the things that he has absolutely mastered right and and this is kind of hand in hand with his, his free throw drawing but it's this idea that he creates space and then the defender if they don't react he he can hit that pull up jumper and he can get red hot but if they react, like if they lunge forward, he's either going to use it to draw a foul or he's going to use the momentum against them. And the constant threat of that just has people on their heels. But then how do you stop that? Well, one way is you don't let him get into these situations where he, you know, he picks you up apart one-on-one. And so the, the, the classic anti-Harden strategy has been you trap James Harden, right? But also you mentioned the short roll. You know, it's it's one thing when the guy in the short rolls was Clint Capella, you know, back in the day. It's another thing when it's Joel Embiid. And especially as Joel Embiid has improved as a passer, in the short roll, you know, he, he can totally catch it and then make that read if, if you totally sell out to his role. And if you don't, he will dribble it and just dunk it on you, right? So trapping him is not the solution it used to be. And switching against James Harden, and especially switching that Harden pick and roll with Embiid, it's suicide because James Harden's one of the greatest isolation players in the history of basketball, and Joel Embiid is going to kill any little guy that switches onto him. So I don't think there's any team in the league with the personnel to guard that. And I, so if you think about it, it's even a more devastating pick and roll, at least in theory, than even something like LeBron and, and say a healthy AD you know, a couple of years ago, because that you could maybe have two like-sized guys who could deal with that pick and roll. But you ain't got nobody with sort of like the agility to deal with Harden and also the size to deal with Embiid. I mean, you guys described it perfectly. So I'll say it like this. James Harden is a guy who made Jeff Green, of all people, look like a fucking monster when he went to the basketball (laughs) situations. So if we're talking about Jeff Green here, imagine what he's doing with Joel Embiid in a pick and roll. Right? Like, we don't even have to... Oh, first of all, we don't even have to imagine it. We're already seeing it firsthand. I mean, the, the guy is an absolute savant with the ball in his hands. He can score at will. He can dish at will. I mean, he's one of the great... I mean, we bag on James Harden a lot, right? For obvious reasons. There's a lot of flaws in his game. But 
no one can take away from the fact that he's one of the best isolation scorers in NBA history. And quite frankly, he's one of the best passers in NBA history. I mean, that combination will always be deadly. And when you play with a team that has as many options as the Sixers have right now, I mean, shit, like the Sixers look super dangerous. I mean, that's the beauty of of picking up James Harden specifically, right? We can get a Dame Willard. We can get a Bradley Beal. But in those guys, will we get someone like Harden who is not only an incredible offensive player, but is also a really, really good passer? I mean, he can get guys open so easily. He can pass in all sorts of angles. He's just such an incredible passer. And then, and then there's the other aspect that I've really been impressed with Harden, which is if there's a guy with the open shot and he passes it up, you see him on the sideline being like, yo, take your shot. Like He's very much trying to get his guys going. He's very much trying to build their confidence and, and really help them develop into their roles on this team. And he's very much that vocal leader that I think we've needed. And, you know, credit to him because he was never seen as someone like that. People just see that the Dwights and the CP3s of the world come into town and he chases them away. You know, it's interesting that you say that, right? Like that that's another issue with James Harden is he's always had a bad rap for being, you know, a, a bad teammate, right? Very egocentric player. I think that in some cases, the criticism is, is warranted. You know, he's a guy who's been known to jump ship and, you know, run away from his problems, things like that. But, you know, the fact that he's making a, a conscious effort to, you know, get to, I guess, know his teammates, make them feel comfortable within the flow of the offense. You know, he's the, the odd man coming in, right? Obviously, it's James Harden and you can cater a whole offense to him. But, you know, the fact that he's playing within that system is, is fantastic. Yeah, but, you know, Anu, the other thing about his previous destinations compared to this one is, you know, this one is very clearly not his team, right? Like, he, and he understands that. And honestly, after his whole experiment in Brooklyn, I think after his time in the Rockets where he had to do so much, you know, that's why he went to the Brooklyn Nets where he could just be a second or third option even. And he was very upset with the fact that Kyrie and KD's injury forces his hand into being that number one option again. So I think he very much is fine with with even just the prospect of being a, a, a secondary option. So that is also why he's he's been very different in this destination as opposed to other places he's been. All right, so here's the part of the pod where I pour a little bit of cold water, hot water. I, don't, I forget what the analogy is. <laughs> is, is are you doing this because you're a... a a depressed Knicks fan, you're tr- trying to rain on other people's parades. <laughs> I am a depressed Knicks fan, uh, but I-, I think it's worth mentioning a couple of things about Harden. The first okay. is that just last season, when he was on Brooklyn, he was his great leader again, right? Like, actually, let's let's not forget that right before that, he intentionally forced his way out of the Rockets by being extremely yep. unprofessional in so many ways. I don't want to, you know, get into all that, but then you know, then he goes to this new team and he's like the best leader ever and everyone is talking so great about him and then what happened to that this season he's back to being a pouty kind of guy so this is a guy who i don't think it's unfair to say that he is he has earned his reputation okay so that's the first thing i want to say so whether or not he's doing well in the moment that has nothing to do with whether or not he will be like this if things don't go well and say a playoff run or he's there for a couple of years he's been an ornery guy 
he's forced a lot of guys off of his team and he's made a lot of demands that have been fulfilled and he's still not met them. But that's not actually the thing I want to actually say about pouring water on your little Harden parade here. James Harden, Aswi, is arguably the greatest playoff underachiever at least since Carl Malone. Was that fair to say? You could even say even more than Carl Malone. For a guy who, if you look at his resume and what he does in the regular seasons, he's had such an unremarkable playoff career. What is James Harden's greatest playoff moment? Is it a block on Lou Dort in a meaningless first round series in which, you know, he did that and he was talking all big <laughs> and then he just vanished against the Lakers last year? Is it that it's probably, if I'm really being honest, that series he had against San Antonio that where he was dominant uh, and, and, and sort of led them to defeat a very good Spurs team and then get to the finals in 2012. But between that moment and his Lou Dort block, there's been so many failures. This is a guy that if you ask him, you know, man, that, that two for 10, two for 11 game that he had uh, so bad, you'd actually say, well, which one was it? Because that's how many this guy's had, right? Like it's a fair thing to actually yeah. say. So my point, Aswi, is ultimately this guy, for all he's done in the regular season, are we just going to come to a stage here in a couple of months where we're like, oh, there he goes again? Because in my opinion, this is a situation where he has no excuse. He's playing with a guy who's playing as an MVP this season. He has a loaded squad that fits him perfectly. He has a good coach. There's no other juggernaut out there. There's no old warriors. You know, he should lead this team or, or along with Embiid, lead this team to a finals. So it's kind of like put up or shut up time, in my opinion. I'm with you there. I agree. And, and as you all know, I've long been one of the biggest critics of Harden. But now he's ours. So I, I've got to defend, you know, you got to defend your boys, right? So I'll, I'll say this. I agree. If things go south, I 100% expect him to get out of shape and have an imaginary hamstring injury again. The point about the Brooklyn Nets is 100% valid. He was a good teammate. He was the guy who basically kept that locker room together when Kyrie was doing all sorts of nonsense Kyrie stuff and KD was in and out of injuries, right? I think for him, I give him a pass not only because it forced him to come to us, but I give him a pass for this season with the Nets because after everything went down in the Rockets, it was very clear he didn't want to be the number one guy on a team. He didn't want to have to play ridiculous minutes like he was forced to in Brooklyn. And he had to deal with the ultimate, I can't even say like a diva case because it's just like the ultimate contrarian case. Like, oh, we all want to go over here. I'm Kyrie Irving. Because I want to make a point that I'm not doing it, I'm going to go over here. So I, I think the person you can really blame for the flameout that Harden had in the Nets is Kyrie Irving, without question. Now, otherwise in the, in the playoffs, we do have to remember that from a pure, like, what have you accomplished in the playoffs? He ran into the, the overpowered, broken, unfair, cheat code warriors. And Unlike almost everyone else who faced them, his team almost eliminated them. So good point, also. That's a good so, point. So so we have to we have to give him credit where it's due. Now he suffers from the same illness, and actually I would say that the illness generated from him. 
this incessant need to get to the line all day, every day, <laughs> and hope that that's how you're going to outscore your opponents. But the thing is, when you're with a guy like Joel Embiid, he's going to have so much open space, and he's going to have so much pressure off of him. Because really, all the pressure's on Embiid because he is the number one guy. Now, obviously, with the way that he left Brooklyn and all of that, there is added pressure on him that way. But it's not the same. When you're a franchise player, that's a lot. And when he's going to be as open as he will be next to Embiid, and let's give Maxi his credit too, I think he'll be able to find his own. It's really up to Glenn to make sure that he tells both Embiid and Harden in the playoffs, just play ball. Stop trying to get to the line. If you play your game, you'll get to the line anyway. That's fair, Oswe. I guess the proof will be in the pudding of the playoffs this year. Can we say and it's in the cheesesteak? Because it's Philly. Sure. <laughs> the proof will be in the cheesesteaks in yes. Philly. Yep. So, Oswe, I do have another slight area of concern for the Sixers. And that is, do you think that a team can win four playoff rounds with a backcourt of Maxi, who's you know undersized and Harden, who basically the only defensive thing that he can do with any sort of consistency is switch and sort of hold up in the post. But can a team get away with that, even though they have elite defenders on that roster, like an Embiid or a Tybal or, or Danny Green? You know, it's something that I don't want to say I lose sleep over, but it it, it prevents me from being so 100% outright confident that we're going to win that and our lack of continuity because you look at teams like the heat you look at teams like the bucks even the nets for that matter they have a level of continuity that we just don't but the defense is definitely a big question and because of the i don't want to say ineptitude of maxi and harden because at least so far i mean maxi definitely tries he's just small and harden is definitely put in good effort on the defensive end thus far in the, what, five games he's played? How do you make up for that? And that is where more problems for the Sixers come because do you put Matisse Thibel or do you put Danny Green? Now, different people have different views on this. For me, the way I look at it is this. When you have Joel Embiid out there, we need to prioritize space. That is the single most important thing because with that space, we allow for Maxi, Embiid, and Harden to do their things. And Matisse Thibel is negative space. When I compare Thibel and Green, I look at Thibel as a guy, when it comes to three-point shot making, three-point shot creation, perimeter shooting, he's at the 4th, 73rd, and 69th percentile in those three. In contrast, Danny Green is the 92nd, 95th, and 92nd in those ones. Now, Matisse Thibel is great when it comes off ball. So why don't you play him on the bench lineups with James Harden? Because then you won't have Embiid sitting in the paint. And so in order to have some type of defensive strength, you play Thibel with Harden, right? To me, I think that one of the biggest concerns is definitely going to be defense. Outside of the three guys you mainly listed, Embiid, Danny Green and Matisse Thibel, no one else on that roster is truly a great defender, you could say. And even Thibel, to a certain extent, his defense is really unorthodox. It's not very, you know, it's not normal. It's he's not a, like an elite man-to-man defender. He's more of like a team yeah. defender in space, getting the steals, the 
sneaky blocks, but man to man, he's not that great. Chaos defender. Yeah, he's, like, he's a real chaos, chaos defender, right? And yeah, while yeah. that style of you know defense is is can be good, it's also very risky, right? You like you get out of position a lot. There's been lots of instances where Diablo will just you know let a guy go by him just so that he can get the sneaky blocker, you know, tip back, things like that, right? So, and against, you know, playoff offenses, there's two things that you really can't do. One, be super risky, and two, you need to be able to switch a lot, right? And that's another concern I have for someone like Joel Embiid. Even though he's a great, you know, switchable guy, you can put him onto guards, but that's going to put a lot of, you know, wear and tear on him to constantly have to switch and cover for for people. So it's really going to show just how good Embiid can really be on both ends of the floor. And I, I have no doubt that he he'll be good, but you know, it's going to put that wear and tear on him. It will. But when you look at what Embiid did against the bulls, I mean, we effectively blitzed and double against DeRozan and Embiid was over and over again, sprinting out to the perimeter on the defensive end. And he still dropped 43 on them. Right. So I think he's clearly capable of doing those kind of things. And the Sixers are capable of running other schemes, but there's a couple of really big limiting factors that I think you're ignoring here. The first is that James Harden has always preferred switching and his teams have always switched in, in large part because it's the only scheme he can actually run. Like he basically sucks at any other thing you could do. So as a result, he forces his teams to kind of go down that direction. Secondly, in, in playoff basketball, switching is just the best defense, period. Because ultimately, any other thing you do is some kind of a gimmick, right? Like if you're if you're putting two on the ball in a blitz, if you're playing a team that has enough passing, enough shooting, which the best teams in the world have, they will punish that. And you won't be able to get away with that. Like, let's say you're trying to do this with Devin Booker or somebody like that. Like, they're going to punish that, right? Like, so it, it's not that sustainable. And the, the other problem with switching specifically is that I, I think Anushan is still right that Embiid, as great of a defender as he is, he doesn't have that Anthony Davis ability to literally just switch and just follow a guard and I don't blame him he's like he's well over seven feet and he's a big man but the bigger problem is the guards like the debate between Thibel and Green is interesting you could put both of them out there if you wanted to and if you're switching at all what is Kevin Durant gonna do he's just gonna find Tyrese Maxey he's gonna find James Harden he's gonna torch them over and over and over again so you know it's a good sign that Doc Rivers has been creative and finding other ways besides just switching and besides this is, you know, typical drop coverage that he's run, like against a team like the Bulls, it, it was cool to see what he did against DeRozan, but there will need to be some switching. And I, I bet you they'll be switching a lot more than probably is optimal in part because of Harden's own limitations. Yeah, no, no doubt that it's going to be really interesting to see how the Sixers face off against the Nets tomorrow, specifically for that reason. The other thing I noticed was because we were blitzing so much, we gave up a ton of rebounds. So like a, a big team like the Bucks or the Celtics, that's just not a feasible tactic either because we just don't have enough guys to get boards, especially now that Drummond's gone. Oh, you're, you're not too excited about the amazing signing of one DeAndre Jordan? Is that what you're saying? Dude, does he, <laughs> does he have like incriminating evidence against everyone in the league because how is a guy that bad still able to get roster spots like i just don't get it i, I genuinely believe that he's the worst player in the nba <laughs> I, I can't imagine that there is not somebody in the g league who can't do 
what he does, which I mean, he can catch lobs, and that's literally all he can do. Like, he doesn't really do anything else. He doesn't make any efforts. He makes the first rotation and no other rotations after that. It was like, oh, right, I'm done with my this play. You know? How <laughs> is that guy getting a job in the NBA? It's incredible. <laughs> I need that job. You know, to me, I just think it's the the name he acquired when he had his time in, in the Clippers. The Jordan. Yeah. Do you mean that the fact that his name is Jordan? Is well, no, no, no I'm, 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 well, that I guess, but like, you know, back when he was with the Clippers, you know, he was heralded as, you know, a rebounding defensive, you know, monster, right? So he made an all NBA team to your point. Yeah. So sometimes his reputation right? kind of so... just follows you. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, 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 it's definitely that reputation. Well, sure. not to mention the fact that his coach when he was on the Clippers is now the Sixers coach, right? Like, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't think that's a coincidence. Right. But also, you mentioned the Celtics, and we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about just how hot this team has been. Like, all the attention in the East has been rightfully on, on the new, can we say, super team that's been for, formed in Philadelphia. Do we, count as, a, do we count as one? No. I don't know. I mean, well, I'll just say a very good team yeah, that's okay. formed in yeah. Philadelphia. An exciting team that we're all hyped to watch, and it's been amazing. Quietly, though, the freaking Boston Celtics, who we all wrote off, even on this pod, a couple of months ago as a team that, you know, wasn't passing the ball well. The coach was calling them out. It felt like an unhappy team. It seems like every other week there was some kind of a, a team meeting going on or something like that. Well, I guess all of that actually worked because they have totally turned their season around and now actually look like one of those teams that nobody would be excited to face in a playoff series. Yeah, the Boston Celtics are 15 in their last 18 they have an offensive rating of 111.2, which is 16th, a defensive rating of 105.6, which is first in the league, and a net rating of 5.6, which is fourth in the league. And we talk about defense. These guys are no joke. They're clearly the best team on defense. Yeah, I mean, this is due in part with, with a lot of things. Obviously, I think the two major guys behind this defense are, you know, Time Lord, Robert Williams, and Al Horford, right? Like, I mean, the Al Horford to me has always been a solid defender, right? He's never going to do anything crazy, like go up to like get up like three, four blocks a game. He's not that guy, right? But he's a solid fundamental defender. And I mean, hey, he gave your guy fits for years, right? I'll say like, you know, for yep. sure. Him and Gasol. So, yeah. And, and Marc Gasol. Yeah. The two profound Embiid stoppers. Yeah. But like, you know, they have a guy like that. And on the flip side, I mentioned a guy who just goes and gets blocks, helps side recovery, some crazy player. That's Time Lord. That's Robert Williams, right? So they have these two guys anchoring that defense. And, you know, Jalen Brown on the perimeter, who's an exceptional perimeter defender. Uh, you know, Jason Tatum is not some great defender, but, you know, he puts in effort. He has the size to match guys. So, and we'll talk a lot about uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in particular, but, you know, throwing those names out there, these guys have, really come into their own and formed a, a really formidable team, honestly. I mean, if you have, as us we said, the best defense in the NBA, you can overcome a lot of offensive fit issues or things like that, right? I still think offensively they can be a little suboptimal, but you, you hit the nail on the head, Anu, and the two guys identified. They have these two anchors that play very differently in Horford and Williams. You have the elite perimeter defenders in Jalen Brown and also a guy you didn't mention, Marcus Smart, who's yeah, an absolute sure. pest. And then on top of those guys, I actually think that Jason Tatum has become a pretty good defender, at the very least a guy who uses length to compete. So, you know, you have a real 
core of people who like we just talked about the Sixers and how they have these problems with small guards and how do they kind of account for that. On the other flip side, you have a team that can basically switch one through five, at least as much as you possibly can. I mean, there's obviously some guys that Al Horford doesn't have the foot speed to stay in front of, but like Marcus Smart on the other end could weirdly hold his own in the post against a lot of players, right? And maybe not an Embiid type guy, but a lot of big men, he'll be fine. So they're very switchable. It makes them very hard to game plan against. But I think that on top of all of that, we've got to talk a little bit, Asui, about Jason Tatum and this sort of career year that he's almost belatedly stumbled into. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, in his last 10 alone, he scored 31.6 points per game with a 54-point game versus Brooklyn. And you mentioned he's having a career year. He's averaging 26.5, 8.2 rebounds, 7 assists, 2.9 three-points made per game. These are all career highs. On 43.8 from the field and 33.4 from beyond the arc. And in that Brooklyn Nets game where he scored 54 guys, he aggressively hunted switches to get Kyrie on him over and over again. So, look, that guy is a problem. He's not one of my favorite players, but he's he's a good defender and he's an incredible offensive talent. Yeah, and then I'm the flip side of you, Usui, because I, I love Jason Tatum. I mean, it's on record that I've said this multiple times. You like baby faces? <laughs> I mean, hey, yeah, the guy's handsome. Come on now. He's not that <laughs> that looking. I, coming I from someone that. who, without my beard, I'd have a baby face too. So I have to As would I. Guy. As would I. That's why I have the beard, right? <laughs> I'm not saying he's ugly. I just say he's a baby face. But, you know, okay, so with Tatum, right, like, this is a guy, Usui, me and you both, when we did our all-star uh, predictions, we didn't necessarily even have him on our teams, right? I mean, if we were to, you know, go back in time and change things, like, I mean, we definitely should have because this guy probably heard what we said and he was like, all right, I'll do you one a little better here. So, Big fan Tatum, of the show. Jesus Christ, like, this guy is just in- incredible. And even today against the Hornets, he had 44 points, so... He's just on a roll. We don't really have to talk about what he can do on offense. We, we all know what he can do on offense. To me, like AC, like you mentioned, like I, I think you're right, actually. Let me go back and change what I said. He's more than just a, a serviceable defender. He's really blossomed into a guy who can use that length. I mean, he's like 6'8", six, 6'9", six, six, and he's using that size really effectively. So, you know, good on him. And the East is going to be crazy this year, guys. It's, it's unreal. The funny thing is, you guys talked about all the things he does on offense and even defense, but have yet to mention the biggest change in his game. The reason that now I think you can actually call him a star player, it's that I've always said that Jason Tatum's passing needed to be better. He has really, really improved as a passer. I mean, not in like the, oh, I'm going to get another assist or two per game. In the, I understand the game now way. That, that is a, a step that when stars start taking, everything really opens up, right? Like, because they pass not because they have to, but they pass early, that they're seeing what's out there. You saw how getting to this stage changed the trajectory of someone for like KD, who was like a pure scorer and then got that skill, or Kawhi, right? I'm not saying they're going to turn into, say, like a James Harden or a LeBron type of passer, but the ability to see the defense and make the early pass has opened things up for a team that still doesn't truly have a real point guard, right? So this really helps them that he is their now hub offensively. And what's so interesting about that is 
I know you guys remember earlier this season, they had games where both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown would score with like zero assists. And we'd all be like, what's happening here? And, and, you know, Marcus Smart made comments about it. And the coach went out there and publicly lambasted his players, which usually is a recipe for a disaster, but somehow has not been here. Well, Tatum has actually learned from whatever that criticism back then. And now just watch the next time you see the Celtics, watch him pass ahead of the play. And it, it just opens things up for them to now where they're a competent enough offense and their defense to get them wins. If you're an average offense and, and the best defense in the NBA, that's enough to win a playoff series. And Tatum is is doing enough to at least get to that average offense. So credit to him. I mean, it, it's the saying, it's, it still holds true. I mean, defense wins championships, right? Rebounds wins championships, that whole thing, right? I mean, this is a team that if they can get a stop, they have a guy, not just one guy. I mean, we didn't even talk about Jalen Brown, who's another guy who can easily go out and get his own offense. When Jason Tatum was out, he was carrying the Celtics, you know, to a a serviceable record, at least to keep them in contention. So I I think that having multiple guys, like these two guys, I would say, plus the addition of Time Lord, who is just a fantastic lob option. It's just a really interesting team all around. Anu, can I ask you a question about Jalen Brown? So he's a guy that I think we all respect as, as if not a superstar, at least like an all-star caliber player, right, we yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Is he good enough, in your opinion, to be the second best player on a championship team? Like, let's say like, let's say like what we see from Tatum is real, right? And Tatum is really going to be this top tier player. Is Jalen Brown a good enough second option? Specifically offensively. We know, you know, he's a good defender, but offensively, can he... Can we rely on this guy to get his 25 in a, or at least 20 in like a really important playoff game against a really good defense? Or is he just a little bit too robotic? And, and you know, that's what I, I'm trying to wrap my head around when I watch him. I think that's a good question you raise, AC. Uh, to me, I find he might not be there yet in terms of not just like, it's like you mentioned, it's very robotic, right? It's like basketball needs a bit more flow to it. So it's like knowing when to go out and get your points. You know, when it's important to go out and do that. I actually think one of the bigger things he needs to improve on is his playmaking. It's one of the the weaker parts yep. of his game. And I feel like if he had that totally at, a, at a higher level, then maybe you could make the argument, okay, you know, Jalen Brown's not just a scorer, right? He can be a facilitator and get other guys involved. If he can do that, then maybe you could raise that argument. Yes, the Celtics have that second guy. But as of right now, without seeing that, I can't necessarily put all my eggs in the Jalen Brown basket. I mean, to your point, Anu, like when I watch him, I see a guy who it feels like you can see him thinking as he's doing a move. And if, if Jason Tatum now is a guy we can rely on to pass early way too often, Jalen Brown's a guy who doesn't see the pass until it's too late. And I agree that creating more is like the biggest thing that would improve his game and make him maybe a true number two option. But even like the rest of his game, it just feels a little bit robotic. Like, yes, he can make an open three if someone generates it for him. He can drive and he can score. He can get his own. It, it just it just feels like there's a lack of fluidity there. There's something where I thought, you know, we saw a couple of years ago that he was kind of on a trajectory to be sort of that next Kawhi Leonard, Paul George type of guy who was this elite defensive player, but then became an elite offensive player. But those guys are smooth in a way that Jalen Brown is not, right? And I'm not sure that he'll ever get there or even close to there. And that's what worries me a little bit about Jalen Brown as a second option. Yeah, maybe it's just the bias in me. But when I 
watch that playoff series between the Celtics and the Raptors. He was absolutely decimating us. So maybe it's just that that right. bias I have to <laughs> when I watch them play. But you know, may, maybe he could develop into that, right? Like, there's nothing to say that he can't. I think it's definitely possible. Uh, you know, Jalen Brown is a very interesting player because with his size, his athleticism, and his ability to shoot the ball, he he has the tools there in place. So it's just a matter of you know being able to execute to the highest level that I think Jalen Brown is able to reach. Yeah, I think there's no question that he can become this player eventually in his career. He's still very young, and he's shown that he's put in the work to improve weaknesses in his game. The the, the big million-dollar question with the Celtics is, will he do that by this playoffs? Because if the answer is no, then I think there's a, a ceiling to this team, right? Because when I look at the other teams in the East, they have multiple guys who can credibly put up 30 points in a game or create some offense or do something else more than what Jalen Brown is doing. At this point to me, like Jalen Brown is like, he's obviously a star player, but it's like the kind of thing where I don't know if he's even like above a really like a a notch above someone like a Drew Holiday. Is he really? I'm not sure. But I I certainly wouldn't say that, you know, he's a a bonafide star and he, and without someone like Tatum, he's not a Giannis where he can, you can have two sort of lesser stars and still win with him. Right. So yeah, that, that's why I think he needs to be better for Celtics to be realistic title contenders this season. So I'll say this: if if he could reach a 2019 Kyle Lowry type level of you know player, right? If he could be right. that, and I think he actually can be that possibly this season. It maybe not in terms of the playmaking, but I'm talking about like all around game. You know what I'm saying, right? So if he could do that maybe the Celtics have an opportunity to kick it into that gear. But if if he doesn't reach that level, then I don't think that the Celtics can be more than what they are right now. But does that mean that Jason Tatum then needs to elevate his game further to get to that Kawhi Leonard 2019 level? Which I think that's what, that's what I feel is unrealistic. Like I think what we see from Jason Tatum now is I do think he is a guy now that, it's conceivable that he could be the best player on a championship team, but that requires a second best player, which is probably better than Kyle Lowry was or Pascal, whoever you want to say the second best player on Toronto was in 2019. Definitely unless Kyle, you're getting, just letting you know. Right. So yeah, I it's agree. It's probably, it's definitely Kyle, but if it's, if it's Kyle, then, you know, that was because Kawhi was playing at a crazy level. And let's also not forget that they also I mean, had they a couple of, yeah. This is a sporting cast. A couple of lucky game. bounces, as else we alluded to before, and also not to mention that wasn't luck. That uh, was skill. Golden State team <laughs> that got devastated by injury. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to relitigate your championship, Anushan. Right, right. Yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying, like, I I think that on an average NBA season, I'm not sure that Kyle Lowry even is like a good enough second option to be a for a championship team to feel comfortable or even be the favorites. Right. So. I think if I'm if I'm the the Celtics, I would hope for more from Jalen Brown, and I I think he has it in him. I just don't know if he'll if he'll have it in him in like the next few months. That's the question. That's the beauty of the NBA. We just gotta wait and see. That's why we love the sport. Yeah. Well, yeah, no question. If the season ended today and playoff matchups were set in the first round, the Boston Celtics would play against the Chicago Bulls, and in Ooh, the second round, they'd cool. play between either the Nets or the Heat. So 
You know, if they're going to be a pest, let them be a pest on the other side of the bracket for once. <laughs> nice, yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You've had enough of those Sixers-Celtics battles enough. for the last lifetime probably, right? It, I haven't, I've had enough of that. I, I'm good. You know, let them do their thing over there. We got Cleveland in the first round and either your Raptors or the Bucks. I'm sorry, most likely the Bucks in the second round. But, you know, well, let's see what happens. Still a little bit of season left to go. Things could change. No. One thing else we that very few people know outside of maybe Philly or Boston or if you're in New Jersey between these two places <laughs> is how much actual dislike there is between those franchises. Oh, and, yeah. and I've heard even big-time Celtics fans like Bill Simmons say, that their deep-seated hatred is actually even more than the Lakers. It's for the for the Sixers that they've run into sort of on these on the way to the finals. Mm-hmm. You know, like so it would it you know for, as basketball fans, it'd be cool to see. But I could totally see why you're probably not looking forward to facing a team like that that has that you have beaten. Your team has beaten, but have, has yeah. also knocked out Joel Embiid as well. Yeah. Well. Whew. If they happen to meet each other in a Eastern Conference Finals, then shit, you're going to have to get through the, the barrier. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. Unlike other seasons, I could say I feel confident that we can beat them because I think we have the better top-level talent. They definitely have better continuity over us, and that is nothing to you know sneeze at. But I just – I see these guys play, these Sixers play – and it just seems so free and so flowing. And maybe that's because we don't have a negative space guy like Ben Simmons anymore. But still, it's just I've I've just never seen this kind of basketball on my own team. So, man, I'm hyped. <laughs> a reserved hype, but hype nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, no, no doubt, us. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna be crazy. The Sixers have a lot of opportunity here to to win a championship. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> And with that, I think that's a great place to stop. We had a lot of fun doing this episode. If you like what you heard, feel free to comment, like, share, rate, whatever you want to do. Follow us on Instagram at brownman one jump All right, guys. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. Peace out.